Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Today, in this episode, we are delighted to be joined by Pierce Nunley. Pierce is actually an orthopedic spine surgeon like some of our previous guests, and Pierce has particular insight into what we do as neurospine surgeons. I've been following Pierce's career for years. We're involved in uh, some study groups together. And what's really amazed me about Pierce is that he adopts new technology, but not only does he adopt it, he actually studies it, publishes on it, and gets the word out there. So Pierce, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for being on. So let me just ask by starting out, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little about how you got to where you are today in spine and how you started to focus on uh, on organized research on new technology. Certainly. Well, Mike, you know, it's been a journey like uh, all of us. And the, uh, it really started uh, back uh, being the son of a professor and uh, and an artist. So um, kind of the combination of those two uh, at the University of Kansas, I, I studied under Mark Asher, who's really well known in spine and was a pioneer, particularly in scoliosis. He developed his own system. And so early on, uh, I used to do construction to get through uh, college and and uh, part of med school. So building things and doing things like that was really a passion of mine. So uh, with Mark Asher, I started to get into research and even published my first paper in spine while I was a medical student. Um, and then when I came to LSU for my orthopedic training, uh, my chairman was from Yale and was uh, very much into research and also spine. So uh, I sort of happened into it. Um, and after, after that, in my fellowships in Switzerland and Dallas, I started working with uh, companies and engineers uh, and other colleagues to develop better ways of doing things. Um, minimally invasive uh, was not even a buzzword uh, back when I started in the, in the mid to late 90s. And really, uh, it's been fun to uh, develop uh, different techniques. But of course, with those techniques, you have to have different kinds of implants. You have to have di- different kinds of retractors, the way that we can, you know, see and, and, and get to where we need to operate on. And, and the fun thing is, is that I get to work with people like you in study groups that, uh, that are bright and, and it's a synergistic process that actually is um, a, a really fun part of my practice uh, other than just you know seeing and taking care of patients. Wow, uh, Dr. Nunley, it sounds like from from the story you described, you you got involved with these companies and with innovation fairly early in your professional career. I, I wonder, speaking as someone who's early in my own career, how best do you think uh, an up and coming surgeon can get involved and approach the cutting edge, even while I'm still trying to learn the basics, so to speak. Right. So that's a great question, JP. And, and uh, it starts with uh, really being interested, right? So uh, people always think if you help develop implants, you're going to make a gazillion dollars. And, and that's rarely the case. Uh, what it is, though, is it's an opportunity to work with engineers. And, uh, and I would say start at the basics. Uh, start working with companies and, 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 uh, that you're interested in 
and, and just let them know that you're interested in teaching, that you're interested in product development, um, and just kind of throw it out there. And, and typically what will happen is uh, there will be a project and they'll ask your interest in, and, and you can start that process. And it kind of snowballs. Yeah, Pierce, so to that end, why don't you go through a little bit of that? You touched on retractor technology. I know there's also technology for fixation and fusion and motion preservation. Walk us through a little bit about how you see spine today. So spine is really expanding in many different ways uh, because of the, all the technology that's out there. Um, and when you look at things, uh, for example, the minimally invasive types of systems, um, there's so many different kinds of systems that are out there that um, uh, to choose from. And now with the new technology, such as you know even navigation or robotics, um, uh, it really becomes a, somewhat of a difficult uh, landscape to try to work through. And and I would say this before we even go further in technology. You know, the most important thing is to do the right thing for patients. So how we're trained and knowing. Uh, that what we're doing is safe and efficacious is really the first and foremost uh, part of being a surgeon. So you have to navigate um, those, those, uh, that, that, that landscape so that as you may be a part of developing new technology, you're always mindful uh, that the patient comes first. Wow. I mean, I, I, I have to say, as someone uh, just getting into this field myself, it's interesting to, to grasp the notion of even while you're on the cutting board making devices, you're still thinking about the patient. Um, I Always. wonder, say again, sir? Always. Oh, of course, of course. So I wonder, you know, having looked back on your career and how you got to this point, um, look ahead for us. What do you see on the horizons of spine? Wow. So I see uh, amazing things happening. And of course, uh, sometimes technology's maybe not quite where it needs to be. Um, you know, there's two things about technology. One is, you know, we want it to work as well or better than what we're currently using. And then two, we can't go anywhere without talking about the cost of healthcare, which is a huge deal in the U.S. So it has to be something that makes sense from a cost perspective. And that's another hat that I actually wear because um, I'm on the board of directors of a physician-owned hospital that's uh, ortho and neuro. And um, we have to constantly be aware of the cost of new technology and how we can incorporate that in. So uh, for example, things like robotics, that is a fascinating technology that is really um, improving in many aspects the way that we do things. However, there's also a significant expense to that that we have to kind of bake in. And, you know, new technology always costs more in the beginning, right, uh, before there's competition and, and, and when the, you're in that learning curve. And so um, I think the future, um, you know, by the time uh, Mike and I retire, we're going to see things very differently than what we do now. It's going to be a much more of an automated process, and there's going to be uh, much less uh, risk um, uh, to the patients than uh, they currently have. So I know that, uh, Pierce, we talked about it before, that you're not as into these big sort of capital 
uh, equipment expenditures like robots just yet. Maybe you're you're waiting for the better technology, and I wouldn't disagree with that. Uh, but you do uh, exist on the cutting edge for uh, MIS surgery in terms of like implant technologies, right? In terms of what you do for for fusion or scoliosis correction and stuff like that, right? That's correct. And you know, one of those is uh, uh, recently been involved in a company called Spinology and their uh, Duo system, which is a lateral access technology. And I've been involved from lateral access since it's uh, uh, first started back in the mid-2000s and have been involved with uh, creating retractors and creating implants uh, for lateral access minimally invasive surgery. Um, and this uh, newest project that I've been involved with in the last few years and have uh, uh, both studied and uh, done some basic science research on has been really fascinating. Um, it it for a couple of reasons. One is that um, the retractor is much smaller, and so you know well that when we go through the psoas muscle, we have to navigate through uh, various nerves that are both afferent and efferent, and we got to not damage those to do what we need to do. So the smaller retractor makes it. Uh, really much um, uh, less likely that's going to happen. And in fact, in our study, we've actually proven that, uh, that there are less um, um, uh, neurological uh, issues. Um, and that's really about the retractor size. Now, how can we get the retractor so small? And that's really about the implant. And the implant um, goes in in a very small uh, uh, footprint of, uh, of, of 16 millimeters. And then uh, the middle of it, is an expandable mesh that we then fill um, that then will um, conform to the patient's anatomy. As you know, the end plates, both the inferior and superior end plates, are all unique. Uh, the inferior one's typically sort of flattish. The superior one is typically domed, but they're all unique. And so no implant that's manufactured can perfectly match a patient's anatomy. But when you fill a bag and the bag fills the space that's there, it conforms perfectly with the patient's specific anatomy. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I wonder when you're in your clinic and you're booking cases with these patients in which you plan to utilize a, a new device, a novel device, um, maybe earlier on before you have these studies in live patients outside of the laboratory, so to speak. How do you discuss that with the patients and, and to what extent do you go into the details of the novel technology and, uh, and not just the perhaps the risks of the new implant, which may not have been fully explored yet long term, but also going into how this device was made for that patient, so to speak, or you wouldn't be using it in them? Right, JP, you bring up a good point. And uh, that's that's obviously informed consent. And so I think it starts, uh, you asked about how to get into this. It starts with really having a lot of knowledge in biomaterials, biomechanics, um, and, and understanding that well, so that if there is a new implant, you have the basics of understanding, um, the, at least theoretically, how it's going to work. Um, and then specifically to your question, you, you then take that to the patient. Like, for example, the first um, uh, cases that we did, we didn't have any data. So uh, we simply explained, very similar to what I just said earlier, 
um, this is the implant, you know, and showed him the implant and showed him the difference. And of course, at that point, even during the study, we have to we have to be intellectually honest and tell him that theoretically we expect this to be this way, but we don't know. Um, and early on, before we had the data, theoretically, we thought we would see um, less problems with numbness and uh, weakness following um, the use of uh, the novel retractor. But you just have to tell your patients, look, theoretically, it's like this. I can tell you I've done a lot with XYZ retractor, and it's a very successful surgery. I certainly don't expect it to be worse. Yeah, I like how you're making that segue for us, um, the natural segue to building that research infrastructure. And I know that you and, and Marcus Stone, who leads your, I guess he leads your research efforts, you really have a tremendous research infrastructure for what I would consider sort of like almost like a private practice situation, right? So talk to us about how that came about, how you built that, what what the challenges are, and and you know what you're hoping to accomplish. And what you bring up, Mike, is really important, and that is the infrastructure to do uh, really quality research requires a lot of time and effort and money. Um, and so uh, it really starts with the first studies I was involved with in the 90s. Um, uh, it got to where a single employee wasn't doing uh, enough. And then in, two, in the early 2000s, um, I decided we needed a department. And so we created uh, a department that had one employee and then two, and then uh, it, that just grew. Um, because research uh, uh, follows uh, very specific guidelines, and those, those guidelines and rules have become even more onerous uh, over the years. Um, so we have these things, you know, obviously IRBs and all the rules and, and, and uh, GCP and being able to um, uh, really do research well. We've been through three uh, FDA um, uh, audits in our site and, uh, 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 you know, those are very, uh, very tedious uh, things to go through. And uh, so it, it, uh, if you're going to do research in, in your facility, uh, it really takes a dedicated team, at least one, two, or three, depending on how many studies. We actually have six employees currently. At one point, when we had more studies going, we had 10. So it's quite, a, quite an infrastructure um, uh, that has to be maintained. And Dr. Stone does an absolute fabulous job. In maintaining that infrastructure, I imagine you have a diverse range of personnel working with you, both uh, clinical, administrative, dedicated research staff. Um, in your experience, especially in those early stages where you're just picking your first employees when you're a small group of one to two to three, how, how do you pick the best people for those jobs and what kind of people do you try to get on the team first? Well, you want to get somebody that has experience like anything else. Um, and so uh, being in a, in a town that has uh, a university, uh, that's helpful. So people that have had uh, um, uh, really uh, uh, some significant experience is the most important thing. But you also need to empower them uh, uh, to be uh, autonomous um, and, and really help uh, make sure that all your policies and procedures um, and SOPs are, are, are appropriate. And it takes time. Like, for example, you know, I spend, uh, I meet with Dr. Stone for a weekly meeting at least once. We have a standard meeting and then we talk many different times during the week, being PI on several studies. 
you know, there's a lot of paperwork and um, now more and more is being done on the computer. Um, and uh, so, and even being PI with other, uh, other doctors in the, uh, in the practice, some studies require my oversight before any enrollment with, with any sub investigator. And so um, that, that's a time dedication that that's not reimbursable. So it takes, uh, it, it takes that kind of dedication to, to research and wanting to make sure that it's, it's done right. But it really starts with your team and your team kind of driving that process because during the day, Mike and I are taking care of patients and we need people uh, uh, to, to, to be running that machine and making sure that all day, every day, that machine's running and interface with us um, when, uh, when they need to, to, to talk to us. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to um, overestimate the amount of work and money that goes into it, right? But but you've done such a great job with that, Pierce, and my hat's off to you. T- tell us about some of the research projects you're doing right now, just to, to give people an idea. Maybe some young folks out there will be listening want to get involved in some of the research you're doing, you know? Right. So we have some internal things that we look at, but as far as uh, bigger projects, um, uh, we're working on the uh, Sentinel uh uh, TDR study, which has been a really fun study because it's actually studying two uh, two different uh, cervical TDRs, and this is the first time I've ever been in a in a study where I get to pick interoperatively which of their two devices I want to use. Um, so that's kind of a fun one. Um, we've been involved with some of the intradiscal uh, things like uh, Discgenics and. Um, uh, we got involved with the Pfizer um, staff uh, Aurea study uh, that unfortunately didn't work out, but that was a fascinating study. You know, that, that brings a segue to doing, um, it's a whole nother level to do anything that has to do with pharma. Um, so we did an opioid study um, for a post-op opioid study. Um, and uh, now we're doing uh, a study with a company called Koros where uh, we're looking at um, a new bone uh, graft that is basically um, uh, a human hormone. Um, and so that is also um, a, a pharma type study. And to do that, you now need to have uh, a lab uh, within your facility. You have to be able to spin down blood. You have to be able to have freezers, refrigerators. Um, so that, that really, uh, and then of course your AE, your adverse event uh, recording, is amped up significantly um, in in that kind of a study. So um, we were fortunate uh, several years ago to start to get into some of the pharma studies, um, which, as I said, requires uh, increase in infrastructure and attention to detail. Um, but it's really paid off, and um, it's actually you know quite quite fun to to, to be involved in these more uh, intricate uh, studies. Well, I, I imagine that um, kind of a, as this conversation reflects, the majority of research within spine surgery um, involves implants and, and devices. But as you say, the, the pharma side of things is there as well. And that's something that our listeners probably don't consider when they're thinking about surgeons conducting surgical research um, and the involvement of drugs and drug manufacture there as well. Uh, what other fields of research are you currently involved in? So. Um... Principally, it is implants. Secondarily, um, it's uh, um, it, it's it's doing uh, some of these uh, intradiscal and um, uh, pharma type studies. But uh, we also do some biomechanics. So 
Uh, actually, kind of a segue back to the spinology um, discussion. One of the fun things about being in that project um, is I got to uh, work um, uh, with Lisa Ferrara, who is an amazing uh, lady that has, uh, she's a PhD and has a biomechanics lab uh, that's private. And uh, I got to go and actually do biomechanics research on the implant and on some of the aspects um, of that um, and some cadaveric research uh, uh, as well. And so that's that's actually a lot of fun too. I don't get to do um, as much sort of the basic bench type research that that I'd like to do, but but being able to do uh, some of that and get back into the lab and mess with an Instron um, is is really a lot of fun. Wow, Pierce, it's really fascinating, all the things that you're telling us about. I think spine is one of those fields that, you know, there's so much in the future, so much is changing. I was reviewing some of the changes over the course of my career, and when I first started, the technology was so limited. So my hat's off to you for, for getting, uh, getting all that done. Tell us a little bit about your vision of the future. What's coming next in the world of spine and, uh, and minimally invasive in particular? Yeah, Mike, you know, I think that... What we're going to find, it's what, what you and I have seen and worked together on is, is like, for example, let's take um, uh, complex spinal deformity surgery. Uh, you and I are together in the International Spine Study Group, and, and, and of course, we're um, uh, helping lead up the, the, the minimally invasive part of that. So, and, it, and, it's, and it's what's interesting, and, and you know this from that group, is that group started as, a, as an open, um, traditional type of uh, a big surgery uh, group, and then all of a sudden, people like you and me start joining it, and and saying, uh, "Wait a minute, we can do that through smaller incisions with less blood loss and less hospital stay." And they're like, "No, you can't." And we're like, "Yeah, we can." And um, so, and and we've shown that. Now, there's some things we thought we've shown that we haven't, but but we're we're moving that needle and we're pushing the envelope. Uh, we're helping uh, young surgeons uh, with our misdef protocol, you know, trying to understand how they can maybe take a, a complex curve and possibly treat it with less invasive ways uh, and get similar or, or, or maybe even better results. So, um, so I think that part of the future is going to be um, learning how to do what we do uh, with less trauma to the patient uh, and better outcomes and hopefully uh, cheaper. I think we're also, I think, uh, although I said, right now in its current state, I'm not sure if the value add uh, for navigation and robotics is quite there yet, um, but I know that that curve is going to intersect. Like, for example, ro robots don't put the, the screws in for, you know, uh, at, uh, you, you talked about me flying a plane. Well, in the manufacturing of plane, their robot will drill and put the rivet and the rivets placed in a very precise way with, with less tolerance than what we need to even put a pedicle screw in. So the machines, the robots that are making our cars have tolerances that are as are better than what we need to do spine surgery. So, so I think the future will show a robot basically putting a screw in to where we're just sitting there saying, go put a screw here, go put a screw here. And, and we're sort of helping with the process, maybe with uh, exposure. Um, and I think that's going to be really cool when that happens. But, you know, we're years from that. And, and part of that's just the development of the technology. And, of course, with lawyers and risk, you know, it's one thing to, 
to let the robot show you where to put it, but you're actually doing the drilling and the, 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 the risk to a company of, well, my robot put a screw in a bad place and that caused a complication. Uh, I'm not sure they're quite ready for it yet, but they will be. And, and then the cost is also going to come down. So I think that, that the navigation of robotics is definitely going to be in the future. Uh, but there's just a lot of, there's a, there's a long runway, uh, I think before, uh, if I put my hat on as a hospital CEO and also as a, as, as a surgeon, um, uh, that I say, you know, this is better than, this is better than in all those aspects, uh, than what we're currently doing. Wow. Well, Dr. Nunley, I feel like I could sit here and listen to you talk about this technology for hours and hours, but out of respect to your time, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. You know, every time we have a conversation like this and, and we hear from someone at, at such a high level in your career who still is just thinking about making better things to take care of people, it, uh, it's such an inspiration to someone early on in, in their career like me who has an interest in these things. Um, so I can't wait for the next few decades as I advance in my own career and see these technologies unfold and see what things are are down the line for us that we can't even expect. So again, thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences today on the Neurosurgery Podcast, sir. You're welcome, JP and Mike. Uh, It's been a lot of fun.